Seems like we spend most of our time on Today in Ohio talking about public officials who are doing questionable things. And that is what we'll be doing with at least the first three stories today. Whatever happened to public officials who serve the public honestly and with good intentions? It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer for a Friday. Yay, it's Friday. I'm Chris Quinn here with Laura Johnston, Layla Tassi, and Lisa Garvin. How are you? Great. Glad it's Friday. Yeah, man. Ready for spring. Okay, that's still yeah, an awkward Yeah, I know. Got to work on this yes, terrible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I tried, but two. whatever. <laughs> <laughs> like we ever take Let's, two. That's terrible. <laughs> yeah, no, no second oh. takes. We don't have time. With a deadline approaching Friday, next Friday, for providing new legislative maps to the Ohio Supreme Court, what are the Republicans on the Ohio Redistricting Commission up to? Lisa, I started to think they were just going to openly defy Maureen O'Connor. Never really a good idea, but apparently not. Well, but they're doing their best to drag their feet, that's for sure. House Speaker Bob Cup has set a meeting for the Redistricting Commission for Wednesday, next Wednesday the 4th, the day after the election, two days before the deadline that was set by the Ohio Supreme Court back on April 14th. There is no agenda for this meeting. The GOP is not working on new maps in either the House or the Senate at this time. They did reject a call for an earlier meeting from Senator Vernon Sykes, who said, we're wasting 20 days. Why are you waiting so long to call a meeting? And there is zero talk on rehiring independent map makers at this point. You know, I I don't think just getting together two days before the deadline and doing nothing and then telling the court we don't have enough time is going to work. They did nothing. I mean, they've had two weeks to get it together. The court ruled in plenty of time and they have openly defied it. If they don't do something on Wednesday, if they don't actually take some concrete steps with the map makers, I think they're going to be in huge trouble with the Supreme Court. I don't believe the Supreme Court under Maureen O'Connor will just say, okay, we tried. It's not like an awkward opening. Right. And (laughs) voting rights groups are really uh, upping their demands to the Supreme Court to find the redistricting commission in contempt and force a meeting. They actually held a rally Thursday in Columbus to kind of push their views. But, you know, the Republicans on the on the commission are like, eh, they're very noncommittal. Cup said meeting before the election would confuse voters and distract Secretary of State Frank LaRose while he's overseeing the election. And DeWine spokesman Dan Dan Tierney he said, well, the governor had COVID. He's okay now, but he's going to defer to whatever Cup and Sykes agree on, which they haven't agreed on anything. Well, Frank LaRose had time to appear at that Trump rally, so <laughs> he's obviously not too busy. I don't know. I, I, I think they're making a mistake defying Maureen O'Connor. Maybe it ultimately prevails. Probably it does. But next week will be an interesting news week. I, we won't know anything actually by the end of next week. If they just missed the deadline Friday, then I guess we'll probably have to wait till Monday to get uh, the Supreme Court's next move. It's today in Ohio. Did the guy with the huge conflict of interest make it into the list of three finalists for the Ohio State Superintendent? Laura, we talked about this yesterday. Laura Hancock's reporting on this was phenomenal. The the candidate had been running the application process. He had changed the rules for it. He had seen all the applications before he quit that on near the deadline and put in his own application. Conflict, conflict, conflict. You'd think that would be enough to reject him completely. 
Not happening. Oh, no. He made the top three, along with uh, Larry Hook and Thomas Hostler, and they were all going to have second interviews next month. So this guy's name is Steve Dack, and he's a former superintendent of Reynoldsburg in the Columbus suburbs. He ran a program at Columbus State Community College partnering with community organizations. But the real issue here is that he ran the superintendent search until days before the deadline, and then he resigned and applied. But apparently the school board really likes him because the they were originally 27 candidates. He made the top list of seven, and then they were interviewed. On Thursday, the board met in a closed-door session, discussed each of these candidates for two and a half hours. Then in a public meeting, they, each name was read, and the 19 vo- board members either voiced yes or no. And Dakin got 17 of those 19 votes. It's amazing. It's just amazing that they would go forth and taint this process by putting somebody in that has a clear... Everybody that got rejected has a legitimate axe to grind now. Yeah. It's like, hey, he got to read everything before he wrote his application. Nobody else had that benefit of knowing who else applied and how to position themselves as better than them. It's it's just amazing to me they would go that way. Yeah, you have to wonder how if any of the board members knew beforehand that this was a plan, right? Because if they were shocked and and dismayed by it, I would have thought they would have voted no against him. Yeah, they're just. I guess they don't think anybody's watching. Laura Hancock's watching. We know that. Keep it up, Laura <laughs> right. Hancock. Right, and this affects every school kid in Ohio. This is, you know, they they rule over the state school board. They set policy. They do all sorts of things that matter for every kid in Ohio. I hope the state is paying attention. Yeah, maybe they ought to incorporate this into civics lessons about how not to do <laughs> you business. You know, this, the, all the school kids, at least, I mean, they all take standardized tests, right? My kids are taking theirs today. So maybe one of the questions would be, who's on the state school board? Yeah. You're listening to Today in Ohio. All right, this is my favorite story of the day. Is the plan by Cuyahoga County Council to create $66 million in slush funds legal in the charter? And what do the people running to be the new county executive think of the slush fund plan? Layla, another terrific story by Caitlin Durbin, the author of the charter, weighs in. Great stuff. So the primary elections are Tuesday, and these slush funds are clearly one of the most controversial issues in county government at the moment. So Caitlin Durbin had sought to to pin down the candidates for county executive on their views on this, particularly because Democrat Chris Ronane seemed so wishy-washy on the matter during his editorial board endorsement interview. And she learned that Republican Lee Weingart and, and Democrat Tariq Shabazz remained staunchly opposed to the slush fund concept, arguing that that spending the county's federal stimulus money in this way at the direction of, of individ, individual council members is, is likely in violation of the county charter and should be stopped immediately before it leads to corruption. But Renane is still a wishy-washy mushmouth about it. <laughs> he said he, he he believes the charter gives council broad power to appropriate funding as a body, and he understands why council felt that they wanted more control over spending because there's this shaky relationship between council and the executive, but <laughs> he hopes that they end up pulling their dollars back together to make decisions with each other about you know, the blah, 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 regional impact and blah, blah. And, um, you know, but as for the legality of the... In- well, wait, wait, let, let's talk about that, though, because that, that I, I was staggered by this, because this seems like it's such an easy one. I'm running for county executive. The county council is really illegally creating $66 million, 11 slush funds of $6 million yeah. each. 
and and they're not supposed to do it. It's any and I'm running for county executive, so of course I'm going to say no. Lee Weingart could not have been more clear, more outspoken about why this is bad. Tariq Shabazz right. could not Firm. have been right. more clear. This shouldn't do it. Bad for the taxpayer. And then Chris Ronane doesn't. You know, Lee Weingart is. It, we've said he's got a really uphill battle. He's a Republican in a county that never elects him. But he's at least speaking clearly, and he has nailed Ronane on a couple of things. One of his points with Ronane is he's an insider's insider. He won't criticize the $46 million that they want to squander on the medical mart because he was on the Destination Cleveland board. And Destination Cleveland wants it as part of the convention center. Does he represent Destination Cleveland, or is he going to represent taxpayers? This time, you know, he's trying to make nice with the Democratic County Council members. Is that his job if he runs and wins or is he supposed to represent the taxpayer? From the taxpayer standpoint, these slush funds are 100 percent wrong. And yet, even knowing that this is coming up, you're right. It was all mush. And and we also, you know, we kind of gave him a second chance at this question because he when he before when he appeared before the editorial board, that was before Councilwoman Cheryl Stevens had done her thing where she pledged prematurely before the slush funds were even a thing before it was even you know it had even been approved in a yeah. it wasn't even introduced in, 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 in yet introduced, the legislation she had already told written. you know what was it university heights that they could have a piece of it for a roads resurfacing project i mean that was crazy and and we also know that council's newest member meredith turner is already talking openly i mean she told our editorial board that she was looking for ways to spend her money and and one of it is like you know she was talking about like how you know she she used her own mother as an example that roots from a tree in in her mother's yard damage the sidewalk and how something like that could be a good use of this money that's not that's not one time uses and we're gonna like cut tree <laughs> helping so, yeah I just, that kind of stuff that's crazy that's and so yeah i mean we we gave ronane a second chance at answering this question after he saw what co- what county council had in mind for their their little you know pots of money and he just didn't he didn't amend his answer and that's too bad Look, lee weingart has has already shown early now that he is going to be forceful and bold and clear in what he says it's going to push ronane or Tariq shabazz if he prevails up against the wall and so far i'm i was surprised this was the the volleyball was lofted up the spike was waiting for him and he didn't do it. Mm. it it's like how do you not come out and say no slush funds so we also have information in that story that about why they're probably or very likely illegal. What yeah, was that? Caitlin spoke to Eugene Kramer, who's one of the framers of the, the county charter. And he told Caitlin that it's it's certainly counter to at least the spirit of the charter, if not the letter of the charter. He pointed to a provision written in the charter that he said is intended to prohibit exactly the kind of thing the county council, with the cooperation of the county executive, is now proposing to do. And that portion reads, no public money of or under the control of the county from whatever source derived shall be subject to appropriation, application, or distribution at the order or direction of any individual member of the council. So, you know, he said that you know that that provision in the proposed charter to be he, that that was included to be as broad and, and all inclusive as possible to prevent the kind of corruption that got you know 
Ken Johnson in trouble at the city, you know, and that sort of thing. Like that, the, and well, prevent the kind of corruption that we've seen in this county before. So, um, you know. Well, beyond that, he said he specifically wrote that to stop this. That that this what they're doing here is what he had in mind when he wrote that clause that everybody voted for. So it's not just the wording says you can't do it. The intent we now know was you can't do it. And no one's stopping it. Where is the county prosecutor's office, the lawyer that's supposed to represent the people? You know, Dave Lambert's one of the best civil attorneys in a prosecutor's office in the state. He should be looking at this and saying, hey, counsel, no, you can't do this. It's it's another flaw in our government. I wonder if we could change the charter so we would force a minority party candidate into government. In Pennsylvania, when I was there, they had three member county commissions, and the first two winners were the, the top vote getters of one party, but the third one had to be the uh, another party, so it was the top vote getter in any other party. What if we created an auditor position but said that the person that gets elected is the person that gets elected from the minority party? So that you always have somebody catching out government. We're the only ones talking about these less funds. Well, now the author of the charter is too. But there, there should be some watchdog in officialdom saying, you can't do this. Here's the other thing. Say they do it. Say they spend the $6 million each and there's a taxpayer lawsuit that says you violated the charter. Would they be personally liable when, for the, for, to return the money because they squandered it? Yeah. I don't know that there's any backstop like that. I've, <laughs> I don't know. Wouldn't that be great if that if they were personally liable <laughs> for violating the charter and squandering six million dollars each? I don't know. I, I just I think we need to push this issue more because clearly what they're doing is illegal and everybody except maybe Chris Ronane seems to understand. I think that. also it, you, it's important to keep in mind that another architect of the charter is Bill Mason, who who you know, is, is, uh, uh, Armin Budish's right-hand guy at the moment. So I, I think if you ask that architect of the charter, he would say everything's cool. So except this guy wrote that clause. He said, I drafted that clause. And the reason I did it was to stop this. That gives him some credibility. I think great stuff by Caitlin Durbin. Check it out on Cleveland.com. It's on the front page of today's plain dealer. It's today in Ohio. With the massive shifts in job markets during the pandemic, what are the metro areas where people from greater Cleveland found jobs? Lisa, this is a kind of an interesting take on the pandemic. Well, and it's interesting. I had to look at the figures and kind of crunch them to kind of make them make sense. But this was compiled by Stacker, which is a group that t combines data analysis with editorial context. So they compiled a list of Northeast Ohio residents from uh, Cuyahoga, Lake, Geauga, Lorraine, and Medina counties. They call it the Cleveland Elyria area and where these people found new jobs after the pandemic. And they use data from the census, jobs to jobs flows um, data. And this covers the first quarter of 2021 and people who started a new job in a new city. So we'll take the number one, although I'm not sure how this is ranked, but Chicago, Naperville, Elgin, Illinois, Indiana, and Wisconsin Cleveland area people found a new job in this Chicago area that was 163, but 174 people from Chicago, Naperville, Elgin, et al. 
got a new job in Northeast Ohio, that was 174. So the net flow is 11 new jobs to Cleveland and Elyria. So I think that's the better way to look at it. So Pittsburgh, we'll take Pittsburgh, which is next on the list. The net job flow there was 64 people coming to Cleveland. And then Detroit, Warren, Dearborn, and and that was 19 people that came to Cleveland. So there were jobs exchanged between the two, but more came to Cleveland than went to Detroit, if you get if you catch my drift. So, yeah. and there, yeah, go ahead. I mean, it, it was just a very interesting way of looking at the trends over the last, well, this was from one quarter, right? Is that, Correct, as I the first quarter of 2021. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, but then there are others that had a net flow away from Cleveland. And so those were a lot of people. So the net flow away from Cleveland to Houston, Woodland, Sugarland was 17 people. Sacramento, Roseville, Folsom, more people from Cleveland area went there than came back this way. And also Tampa Bay, St. Pete, Clearwater, Florida, Louisville, Jefferson County, Kentucky. So these were ones where there were more people that went away from Cleveland than came back from these areas. So yeah, kind of interesting. Yeah, fun way to look at it. And it's nice to see that we got more jobs from Pittsburgh than they got from us because, <laughs> ooh, Pittsburgh. It's Today in Ohio. The pandemic also brought big shifts in recreational pursuits, Laura. We've talked about boating and kayaking and all of the bicycling that went on where people couldn't get bikes. How many people turned to racket sports? Uh, just under 5 million people flocked to tennis between 2019 and 2021. And I have to admit, guys, this is story is a Johnston special because I got an email from the USTA and I was like, oh my gosh, that is a huge amount of people flocking to the sport. And I had played more tennis during the pandemic since I had since high school. So I handed it over to uh, Trends Editor Rich Exner and business reporter Sean McDonald took a look at it. And it turns out we've got a brand new paddle sport, racket sports store coming, the first one that's outside of a tennis club, and talked about the um, paddle tennis courts and the flats, which are brand new as of this winter. So it's a growing sport. And then, of course, pickleball. Like, that's been a trend for a while. But people are just jumping on this outdoor sport. Yeah, it was, uh, it was one that kind of missed our attention. I think we talked about tennis a little bit because you were playing and saying you were doing it more, but it was interesting to see it quantified. And, yeah, you keep hearing more and more and more about pickleball. Do young people play pickleball, though? Because all the people <laughs> I know who do it are old. I, no, they are. My brother plays pickleball in Solon like three or four times a week, and he says they're starting to see an increasing number of, like, 40 and unders there. But beforehand, when it started out, it was really mostly retirees, 55 and over. I think it is something what? you can play with a family. And a lot of the city courts around us are putting pickleball lines on the tennis courts so they can do double duty. Mm-hmm. What is the attraction that's just not as hard on your knees? I've never played it yeah it's, played a lot it's of tennis smaller sports. obviously you know it's like i mean i'm i've never played pickleball but it's kind of a cross between ping pong with the paddle and tennis so i think you can do it it's not as hard on your body or you know and littler kids can do it too well our former colleague on this show jane cahoon is playing a lot of pickleball in retirement so it's a it's a winner it's today in ohio What were the concerns that Cleveland City Council members raised in discussing a plan to allow University Circle and Case Western Reserve University Police to work in Cleveland's Little Italy neighborhood? 
Layla, it looks like this will get passed next yeah, week. Yeah, Courtney Astolfi says that Cleveland City Council will likely soon approve this expansion of the jurisdictions of University Circle Police and Case Western Reserve uh, Police that, that would increase their policing jurisdiction, um, their coverage in the Little Italy neighborhood, and then in the small slice of the Glenville neighborhood. And that change would come through amendments to these existing agreements that grant the two private departments policing authority in University Circle and around Cases Campus, along with granting both departments new policing powers in Little Italy. The changes would allow Case Western to expand its policing to a roughly 15-block stretch of Glenville along Wade Park Avenue, where some students live. And Cleveland Police is, is the only department that currently serves both areas. So, Chris, you had asked what were the concerns that council members raised. Well, you know, there were concerns about equity throughout the city. Of course, you know, people were asking why are these neighborhoods getting this special police coverage while other parts of the city are suffering with slow police response times. And there were questions about whether this might mean that Cleveland police would be redeployed to serve other parts of the city. And there really there really weren't great answers for that. But perhaps the most pressing concerns were about <clears throat> the difference the different standards and practices between the smaller private police forces in Cleveland, which has made all these policy changes, of course, in recent years as part of its consent decree with the DOJ, and soon will have the strong civilian oversight as part of a charter amendment approved by voters in the fall. And, you know, Police Chief Drummond said both private departments have robust policies and that university circle police's use of force policy and citizen complaint policy comport with Cleveland police's policies. But, you know, also at issue are are body cameras. University circle officers have body cameras and Case Western officials said they intend to get their officers cameras by August, but they don't have them yet. Council members said the city could demand certain training requirements, policies, and the use of body cameras with changes to the agreements that that give several private departments authority to exercise policing powers within Cleveland. But Chief Howard said um, city officials are, are having discussions about requiring body cameras from private police forces that operate in the city. But he said there's no need for council to include that mandate in the current legislation. Um it seems like they should, though, don't you think? I mean, <laughs> well, let, let me ask you this. I thought Councilman Kevin Conwell would stop this because, as as you might remember, University Circle Police stopped him, frisked him for basically walking outside while black. I mean, it was one of those completely inexplicable stops and he was furious about it he felt like university circle police have a history of mainly pulling over black people it was a big study done on it a couple years ago and it it, the the numbers are terrible so i you know i i i I would think that there'd be some fear about that that this is a department with a history of not being equal in its treatment that now will be operating in the city and and i thought early on he did raise some objections have we heard or maybe you don't know has something been been done to ease his fears of i that? don't completely know but i i uh, but i i had heard that that was an early um concern of his that that caused this to stall for a moment and um and that so they they kind of slow rolled it for for a while based on those concerns and but in the end he did come out in favor of this plan and he said that his residents were in favor of it too and that was predominantly because 
this neighborhood sees such an influx of people each day, as many as, you know, 50,000 people flow into into this uh, this part of the community, you know, including like students and hospital workers. And so it just made sense that this this being such a pinch point of the community that that they have this kind of increased uh, police coverage. So in the end, I think he, he erred on the side of of increasing the police coverage, even if he has this strong emotional response to to it. Well, but but okay, but I'm surprised the residents want it if that's the reputation of this department. Here's the thing. I get why Little Italy would want extra patrols. They're you know, basically saying Cleveland is stretched too thin. We don't get enough patrols. Why would University Circle Police and Western Reserve University uh, people want that? Why would they want to spend their money to patrol neighborhoods? I wondered that's that too. Theirs? I don't know. I don't know if there is if, if there is a, a component of this agreement that that you know compensates them uh, for for their increased coverage. Usually not. Usually not. I suspect it's because it's it's their folks that are in Little Italy, mm-hmm. the people who attend the university are in Little Italy, and people throughout University Circle going to Little Italy. We've had carjackings there. It's scary. And so those people are asking for better patrols. Uh, it, it will, it'll be interesting to see if anything develops where there's unequal treatment by these new departments in that area, whether city council... Uh, brings it back because this was this is something that has resonated with Kevin Conwell for ever since it happened um and I know he had lots of support from his neighborhood I mean it right. was it was really a, a, an ugly incident doesn't it seem a little risky to to cede this territory to a police force that doesn't perfectly align with all of these carefully designed yeah, parts right. of the consent decree and the body camera a- issue. And I mean, these are things that we have really, we have spent years and years working on and then they just invite a police force in that can't be, can't just be willy nilly about this stuff, man. You just can't. Well, and they're not accountable. Right. You know, the, the Cleveland police are accountable to the city council, to the administration. See, These other departments risky. are not. Yeah, I know. I, I, I did not think this was going to happen. I thought Kevin Conwell's objection would block it, you know, for good reason, because this sets up a risky situation yeah. for, for police departments that do not have the standards that Cleveland police has been adopting to be in Little Italy, which is a big gathering point poses huge risks so a surprise to see that he was on board yeah surprising you're listening to today in ohio we love cool science how is research by the cleveland clinic likely to help prevent the muscles of astronauts from atrophying in the absence of strong gravity during space missions lisa you get to play dr science A Cleveland Clinic had two research uh, projects aboard the Axiom Mission 1, which went to the International Space Station and came back just a few days ago. This was a privately funded space launch. So they're studying the effects of microgravity on the body for extended missions with an eye towards sending people to Mars one day. Now, the first experiment was how spinal muscles change in space. They x-rayed and MRI'd the astronauts before and after the flight to compare to 
determine what's happening there in the spinal muscles. They also had another experiment that looked for brain changes. So they did a high-resolution brain MRI both before and after the mission, focusing on the cortex and the tissue around the blood vessels in the brain. They want to look for a possible swelling or hemorrhage. The uh, the leader of this uh, research project is Dr. Thomas Mraz. He's head of the Center for Spine Health at the Cleveland Clinic. He hopes to publish a paper in about a month or so. But the mission pilot, Larry Connor, he's a Dayton entrepreneur. He uh, was also a big donor to the Cleveland Clinic and Mayo Clinic, which also had experiments aboard this, this uh, space station. And uh, Larry Connor assisted with the experiments. He learned how to gather, you know, samples and, and analyze them. So yeah, here's a here's private sector entrepreneurship and uh, health research working together. Well, you just don't think of Cleveland Clinic in terms of space travel. They're the hearts mm-hmm. and the cancer, and it's just kind of a cool thing. They're so big now. They've got their fingers into a little bit of everything. It works because we have the NASA Glenn Space Center here, but it's uh, fascinating what they're doing. It's today in Ohio. Let's do one more. What would it mean for the Bedford Heights Memorial to Holocaust victims and survivors to get national status? Laura? So this won't change much right now. The government wouldn't be responsible for maintaining the memorial, but the status would make sure it remains for future generation. And this is the Cole Israel Holocaust Memorial that was erected in 1961 by survivors of the Holocaust who live in Northeast Ohio. It's one of the nation's oldest Holocaust memorials. It includes the ashes of Jewish Holocaust victims and other tokens of remembrance at the base. And the walls are engraved with the names of people killed during the Holocaust, as well as people who have died since who survived at the time. And actually, I have not been there. I did not know this existed so it probably would bring more prominence to the memorial and this is um a national holocaust remembrance day although the timing does seem a little bit questionable when you look at the election going on right now right Chantel brown is promoting this Chantel brown won last year with a huge group of votes from the jewish community so the fact that this is news today with four days to go before the election is not coincidental it's today in Ohio. You know, it is amazing. We are just a few days from the election. We've been talking about that Senate election on the Republican side for almost two years. Like the entirety of fi- the pandemic. <laughs> well, I guess a year and a half, right. But it's uh, we are finally coming into the end of the Republican primary. We'll know Tuesday, hopefully, who won. We'll be talking about that Wednesday That does it for a Friday. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Layla. Thank you, Lisa. And thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast. We'll be back on Monday to talk about some more news. 